0: Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Tyler Warner. And I'm Zach Grafman. And today we are talking about the canon of Scripture on part two of our series on the Bible. Okay, so last time we were talking about
1: the, the Bible, what we think about them, what are the attributes of Scripture. So I think the next kind of logical question that comes up for me, Tyler, is... All right. So that's, that's what we believe about scripture, but how do we know what is scripture or what
0: counts as scripture? How do we know that we have the right books in the Bible? That's kind of sitting on our lap. That's right. So that's a great question. And that is a question that we have an answer to when we talk about the Bible as inspired and inerrant and infallible and all of that, we are exclusively referring to the books that we have called the Canon of scripture. The canon of scripture. And this is a reference that means the authoritative list of writings that constitute the Bible. And you may be familiar with the term canon if you're a Star Wars fan or if you watch (laughs) TV and... You know, certain episodes are canon, we'll say now that it's a part of the official story. And that's exactly what we have in scripture. It's Although they stole it from the Bible, we didn't get it from TV. Uh, that the canon, the word canon, is, is a Greek word, canon, and it just means reed, like a, a reed that you'd grow in the river or something. And it, it euphemistically means a rule or a standard. So we use the word ruler, which is a stick that we use to measure things and it's the same idea that the canon is a measuring stick for what our thought and our practice is and there are 66 books that constitute our canon old testament and new testament and that's what we're talking about today
1: all right so we've we've got 66 books that are in the canon these are the ones that we accept right as 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 orthodox protestant Christian, evangelical Christians, these are the books that we say, okay, this is scripture. So now how, I guess my question is, because you know, I'm a history guy, that's that's how I look at things, is where did that come from? How did we, how did we as Christians, you know, come up with that? Or who who first pointed at those 66 books and said, yes, these are the ones that are accepted and, and not no other ones? Like, how, how do we know that that's the right Thing I'm a little bit playing devil's advocate, but I think it's really important.
0: And and this is a question a lot of people ask. I've asked before. Is okay, great, but but how do I? Where did where did these ones come from? It's an important question to ask, and, and we shouldn't be ashamed of asking it. And I think on certain issues uh, in the church, we're content to kind of punt, and and we say things like, "Well, we can't really know, so we accept it on faith." And listen, I, I believe in accepting things on faith, but we also need to know the reasons why we believe these things right. and the history behind them. And uh, this is a good discussion for us to have. So there are some who are, are very cynical on this point. So we'll start with the skeptical view, which most of you have probably heard if you've spent any time on the Internet or if you've taken a history of religion class, for example. Uh, there's one scholar who says, and I'm quoting here, the decision to collect a group of chosen books and form a scripture are all human decisions. So that's, that's the skeptical view summed up right there, that it was a human decision, that men made the decision to create a Bible, that it was arbitrary, it could have gone any number of different ways, and so the Bible that we have, it's fine because it's part of your tradition, but there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing official about it as concerns God himself, that this is basically just made up, and, and that is not the view that we have, of course.
1: No, and, and I think the reason for that is, you know, we you and me talk about this a lot that we're supernaturalist Christians, right? Yes meaning I believe in you know, because I believe in scripture and I I uh, what scripture tells me is that I live in a world where the supernatural is possible. So I think a lot of times if you approach the world and say, No, the supernatural by definition can't happen, then yeah, you're gonna look at the canon and decide it's a natural process. Yeah, right? by it's, default. Of course, right? And so but that's not our that's not the world that I believe we live in. And so therefore I, I don't I don't have to start from a place of no, there's no, all of those, the processes of making the canon have to be natural. In fact, I should expect when I read scripture, if I hold that as my authority, I should expect that there's a supernatural element to this process because that's what God, you know, first of all, how God does everything else. And also that's what God says about his word. He says, it's God breathed
0: exactly like we talked about yeah, last about that time. Last time. So, okay. Yeah, so for sure. Well, let me, let me jump on that before we move yeah, on. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you believe that there is no God, that there is no such thing as spirit, there is no afterlife, there's no angels, no miracles, or anything, of course you don't believe the Bible can be anything else. Right. And this is something that we're going to come back to repeatedly tonight, that the canon of Scripture is a theological issue. Mm. This is a, an, an in-family discussion, you might say. <laughs> this is something that Christians discuss and we talk about because we believe that God brought this together. And if you don't believe in God, then of course you don't. So right. uh, we're going to look at, at some of that, but I, I'm sure you've all seen the skeptics. And, and very often these are people that have an ax to grind against the Bible. And it, you know, if you hate God and hate the Bible and hate the church, then you know your critiques are, are suspect in my opinion. But I wanna start by going through this. And we need to start by acknowledging that that accusation if the premise is true then the conclusion is true if the canon is determined through human processes only then the doctrine of canon really means nothing if men made the canon men can change the canon right so if that scholar is right and saying these were all human decisions then there really is no such thing as holding to the standard because if we made it, we can change it, Okay, of course. So mm-hmm. uh, we've got to look at, at, there's a couple different ways that people try to authenticate the canon. So Christians now, talking about Christians, we're not skeptics, we agree that the Bible is the Bible. But we say, how do we know that? And there's, there's two, I think, good but not great ways to go about this. So we'll, we'll start first by trying to establish the historical accuracy of the books.
1: Sure. So that's when you're talking about establishing historical accuracy, I guess you'd be talking about like, OK, we're going to use extra biblical sources to go out and, and and corroborate like historical details in Scripture. OK, that archaeological find agrees with this place in Scripture. We're going to basically check the accuracy of the text and then we're going to check that the text we have is still, you know, correct. And we're going to look at textual criticism. And, and by doing all that, we're going to hopefully in some way ratify Yes, this is God's word because, look, it doesn't have error in it that we can find. Is that kind of what you're talking about? That's
0: exactly right. So you, you'll say, if we can demonstrate that there was a man named Moses, right, then well, the Bible is true, therefore it's canon. Or, put another way, if we can affirm that the Old Testament accurately represents Israelite theology, or that the New Testament epistles accurately represent the New Testament teaching, the, the teaching of the men from that time, then then it's an ap- appropriate canon. So this is the understanding that accuracy ensures authority, that if I can demonstrate that, yes, there was an exile in 586 BC, then that makes Scripture Scripture.
1: Now, of course, I, I kind of have, I can see probably where you're going with the, the slight problem here, right? And, and again, I love, like, I've always been fascinated by biblical archaeology and and all this stuff and I study it and I love it and I think it's really really important but I guess my question would be if you're relying on things outside of scripture to ratify it then you're you're placing your faith actually not in God's word and its inspiration but in the best efforts of archaeologists and historians which well great and a benefit to us they're they're flawed right of of course like they're going to make mistakes or we don't know that all the evidence has been found we maybe there's you know what if we find a place in the Bible where we don't have evidence for it yet does that mean that we have to wait to ratify its its canonicity until we've got historical evidence right so I guess the problem that I have with that view well I think it's really important is like well, aren't we now placing the authority
0: for Scripture in something else? That's, that's you hit the nail on the head. That we are placing the, the we're, we're hanging our theology of Scripture on our ability to prove Scripture. Right. And now, like you said, I believe you can authenticate and prove Scripture. And I love getting into all that. And it all has its place and it's good, but you need yeah. to make sure it's at the right link in the chain. Why would historical accuracy alone indicate Inerrancy. Mm. So just because we can prove that certain historical events happen or that this is what they taught, you know, this is what Paul taught. Great. But that does not push us any closer towards believing that Paul taught the word of God. Mm. So okay. yeah, yeah, if, if huh? we can right. say Paul wrote Romans for sure. Right. But what does that mean to me? Why should I listen to Paul? Do you mm-hmm. understand where I'm getting it? It's a circular argument. And saying you're trying to establish authority based on appealing to a different authority. So you're backing up the question. You're saying, I know that it's true because it was written by God's inspired messengers. Right. And I know that they were God's inspired messengers because the Bible tells me so. Right. Well, you've just gone around. So this is not to say in the slightest that the Bible has errors that we can't confirm it or something. We just talked about last time. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but we cannot try to establish its authority on the authority of history. Right. So these are, these are pillars that support the canon, but we don't place our faith in the methods and conclusions of men. As, as you said, one day you're up, the next day you're down. And it all trends in a, in a biblical way, as we've seen throughout history. But you know, just because one argument sounds good today, if you hang your hat on that, and there are people whose faith has been destroyed because there will be some discovery that seems to knock them out of bounds, and if you don't have a theological understanding of what the canon is, right. then you're going to be in trouble.
1: We're going for something bigger here than just a couple telltale discoveries that can help allay our fears that maybe the Bible's wrong on something. We're we're trying to find out from a theological point of view how can I believe and trust that this is God's word right and, and that i totally agree i don't want to rest that on you know archaeological discoveries as much as i love those because you know what those have been proved to be flawed before we've had plenty of cases where people will say no no we can't find the evidence for that and then a couple years on it turns out that we can so that to me i agree that's not a good basis no <laughs> for my it's, understanding it's not. of you,
0: you, the canon well paul said this we've proven that paul said it well so what why right, should right. i listen to paul it's like kind of like when uh pharaoh moses came to pharaoh and says the lord has said that you must let my people go and he says who is the lord that i should listen to him so uh don't take the wrong lesson from that we believe that you can confirm and i love those research and the studies and and the discussions of authorship and everything but the historical method of confirming the canon is is not a good one so it, it has its place in the chain but not here so the second view of authenticating the canon that is also insufficient is the one that grounds its authority in the church. So you can mm-hmm. call this, this the ecclesiastical method of understanding of canon, I should say.
1: So meaning, okay, look, at this point, a church council sat and they decided this, 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 and that, and therefore we accept, you know, by by faith that God used them to make that decision, and now we accept their authority, and they, they ratified the canon, and now because of that church council... We, that This is what we accept, right? And, and that's where a lot of times... And I, you know, I even... Before I really studied this, I, I kind of would have... If you had asked me, I think this is where I would have fallen. As I said, well, um, I know that there was a church council or a couple church councils that said this is God's word and we accept it, and I trust that. Like, that's probably more where I would have kind of understood this to come from. So what what's the issue there, right? Aren't those guys that were trying to... You know, those are guys that are trying to discern God's word and they're and they're operating hopefully through the Holy Spirit like
0: wh- why is that a problem well the problem is the same one it's the issue of authority mm-hmm. so if you believe that God anointed the church with his authority by the Holy Spirit as I do
1: oh yeah then right. you right, should right.
0: look to the church and so this is the typical Roman Catholic view that we believe the Bible because the church has decided that this is the Bible sure and there's a lot of good here because you are bringing the Holy Spirit back into the conversation, which is yeah. always a good thing. Yes. You are looking to church history and tradition, which is also a good thing. And I think the people that tend to hold this view, they are staunch defenders of church history. And I appreciate that. But once again, you've placed the locus, the location of authority, outside of Scripture. The Bible is now dependent upon the church. That yes. The church decided the canon. So the church is... In authority over the canon so mm. the question is the same one mm-hmm. we asked before is where did that idea of authority came from come from why why do we believe the church has the prerogative to decide what is scripture well I believe the Bible because the church believes the Bible and I believe the church because the Bible tells me so right right, right. well that that's not good mm. because if the church made the Bible the church can change the Bible we're right back to that quote from before that these were all human decisions then why not have another human decision to change it and in fact historically that did happen we're going to we're going to discuss it later
1: right so in other words you're you're the 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 thing that we're looking for here and we're going to we, I believe that we have it we have a way to do this but the thing we're looking for here is a way to understand why Scripture is God's word, and what Scripture, <laughs> and what writings are God's word that mm-hmm. doesn't rely on just another human being making that decision for me and pointing and saying I say this right? Because then what we're doing is we're, in a sense, we're putting a human authority, whether it's the the work of a a scholar or an archaeologist or the decision of a church you know leader, above the authority of Scripture, and we we don't want to do that, right?
0: Yeah, and you'll you'll see sometimes new atheists will say this as. You'll see memes where it's like, I have decided that this book is the greatest book of all. And it says you have to listen to everything I say. Well, I don't listen to you. Well, the book of all books says you have to. And it's this silly circular thing. You know, there's a story that I love to tell. I remember this. This was in 2012. I've looked it up. That Rick Warren, who's pastor of Saddleback Church, was on the Piers Morgan show. And Piers Morgan brought it up and with much passion said, <laughs> isn't it time for an amendment to the Bible? And his whole point was now that we know supposedly yeah. that homosexuality is not a sin, all those passages in the Bible that call it a sin need to be expunged. And he kept We need an amendment to the Bible. And, and Rick Warren just kind of laughs, goes, <laughs> not a chance. Right. Which is the right answer. But here's the thing. If our modern sensibilities Are leaning one way then why shouldn't we as those who have authority over the canon make a different decision you know why not add the Mm. apocrypha martin luther had some issues with the epistle of straw as he said the book of james and that's way overblown in most circles but still he said it why not change it why not tweak it if we have moved on so to speak from it well it comes right back to the, the the word is canon It's a standard. It's a ruler. It reminds us that the Bible is a plumb line for the believer. You measure yourself up against what it teaches in order to determine if you are in line with God or not. So history does not determine canon. Just because we have accurate representations of old doctrine does not mean it is true. And just because the church said so, it does not determine canon. Both of those things are useful and we will return to establish them. And once you have the foundation in place, you can greatly benefit from those things. But here's the thing, Zach. We're wrongheaded when we ask this question this way, as in what determined the canon. It is wrong to think of us determining the canon of Scripture. The only person who has the authority to give Scripture authority is God himself. The Holy Spirit determines the canon of Scripture. Mm. We merely acknowledge what God has already inspired.
1: So you know what I like about, because I this is something that I really, we spent a lot of time reading books on this, and, and I really drilled into this and sat and thought about it for a while. When you explained this concept to me, because we, we read the book, um, what was the book by Michael Kruger? Canon Revisited by yes, Michael Kruger. Yes, and you had me read that, and I, I absolutely loved that book. And the one thing I actually, it was so good that I sat, like I went and wrote like an essay on it later because I was like, you know, sometimes that's how I think. And so I was like, I'm going to think about this by writing it down. So I wrote this whole thing about, and I really, I'd never thought about it this way, but just the idea that there is no single person in the church that can control what is accepted as scripture, that there never has been one human being who has made that decision, that we believe, right, that that decision has been made by the Holy Spirit of God and therefore all of us, Almost, this is a word that gets thrown around in like technology circles now. It's a decentralized decision, meaning it, the 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 authority is the Holy Spirit. Or you might say super centralized.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's probably a better <laughs> way to describe it.
1: The authority is the Holy Spirit, and we all, in a hu- if you're looking at it from a human point of view, there's no central human authority in the church. That's kind of why the Piers Morgan thing makes us laugh, right? Is he says it's time for an amendment to the Bible, and even without the the spiritual question, we say, well where there's no vote like yeah, that's we not don't how the church works we're supposed right. to listen to it right that's not how the church to works. tell us when we're wrong there's no council that gets made where we all agree yes th- that's not how it works we're all through the work of the holy spirit receiving what the holy spirit has already done in giving us scripture and each one of us can only point and acknowledge and accept that thing we don't get to the bible in a sense in that sense i guess you'd say is reading us we don't get to go out and and point at it and make changes and there's never been a human being who's had that authority in the church certainly not uh, doesn't that give you like an incredible amount of trust and assurance number one in in god's word and number two isn't that a powerful like witness to the truth of scripture and the truth of the church because there's no human that's like stage managed this it's literally happened across the planet in concert through the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And is, we're gonna, am I
0: making sense there? Like, yeah, and we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna dive into what that process was. So this, this is what is called the ontological method of canon. And the word ontological is, it comes from the word ontos in Greek. And, and it anytime you talk about ontology, you're talking about the nature or the being of something. So of itself, right? This is, it might be called the self-determining model of canon. That if there was to be a canon of scripture, we can look back and say, is this what we should expect? What, what has happened? Is that what we should expect? And the answer is yes. So that God brought this about. So I want to walk through this, this train. And I, I didn't take this myself. I got this from uh, Michael Kruger, I believe. And we, we say, only God can determine scripture. So well, how do we know that God would have determined scripture? So if God were to do this, what would it have looked like? And we're, we're going to look through these five steps here. Number one, I think these are pretty pretty basic. Number one, God would have to inspire the production of these writings that they had to be written. We're not looking for secret books that have not <laughs> been written yet or didn't write. If they were never written, then they would be no canon. that might seem so basic, but when you're gonna you, when you're doing this kind of reasoning, you have to start out with basic basic stuff. If God wanted to communicate his word to his people, then he would make sure that it would be written. I mean, I think that's fair to assume, don't you think, Zach?
1: I mean, that that is what we're talking about, right? Is is a series of books. So, yeah, I think that's a and I like this whole chain of thought. It's like these are pretty simple assumptions. I, they don't seem like big old leaps of logic, but they 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 help you to instead of I don't know, instead of reasoning negatively and saying, well, what about this, That you you kind of say, okay, well, what would you expect? What would you hope to have? If, if God was going to do this, what would you think would happen? And I think these make sense, right? Okay, it would need to be written down, right? Yes, And, and we call that Real process basic. inspiration. And we have specific theological things that we believe about that from Scripture, but just in a basic sense, you'd say, okay, well, somehow God would have to communicate his word in a way that it could be written down Yes, yeah, so,
0: so we are not... Uh... We're not introducing to the canon the idea, well, God didn't write, you know, didn't have this said, but it still needs to be included. It's no, no, no. Right. It had to be written. And that that goes right into the number two here, which is God would have to reveal these writings that we would have to know about them. And this might seem very obvious, but if you've played enough video games, you know, you've heard of the secret scroll (laughs) beneath the catacombs that nobody knows about that overturns everything we think we know. And. Listen, if God wanted us to have a canon, if what we're proposing is true, that God wanted us to have a Bible, then we have to believe that not only would they be written, but they would be revealed to us. So even in the scripture, the Bible talks about other writings. Yeah. Paul refers Lots. to a letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans yep. that we do not have. He describes a painful letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. We're not entirely sure what that is and and we know that Paul was a very writing person, right? And Luke talked about there were many who had undertaken to write down gospels, right? And that his work primarily was to bring all of these together and kind of give us, you know, the the you know, the complete gospel, you might say. But if we were to find tomorrow, you know, 2nd Romans or something like that or 3rd <laughs> Thessalonians, we're not adding it to the Bible because God did not reveal it to the church in due time if the if the canon is needed right if all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable then for somehow reason two thousand years the church was without something that it needed in order to become a complete mature christian so we're not looking for secret writings right right and again it's important to remember with this whole thing that we're the
1: by saying that we believe that the canon is self-certifying right or however you want to phrase that self-determining, self-determining or you know we are leaving the, and listen, we're Bible believing Christians. So we are leaving a big, we're saying that this is a supernatural process, right?
0: Yes. And so for for you,
1: for, I think even for the question to come up big and it's an honest question. Like, I don't think it's a, it's a Christians you ask, well, what, what would happen if we found a different book today? And you think about it, it's like, well, that's a fine question to ask, but you have to understand that God is, is supernaturally over this process. And for us to assume that maybe there's a hidden book we missed God would have to be the one making a mistake because it's his role in this whole
0: process is revealing it, right? So that one's a pretty easy one for yeah, me. Yeah, and the answer it. is if we did find a new book today, we would study it like we study any other book of, the, of Christian writing that is right. not Scripture. And I think that the Lord in, you know, reducing the number of writings that we have did so on purpose. So number three, so they, we have to agree that they have to exist. First of all, there's no speculating about what might have been written down. Number two, these would have to be revealed. So we're not looking for secret writings or things that didn't have a wide acceptance. And that leads us into number three, these would have to be powerful and be accepted. They would have to make an impact on the church to the point that the church begins to use them. So if we allow that God would inspire and reveal the word, then we have to acknowledge that these are going to carry all of the marks of scripture, right? That they're going to be inspired and inerrant and profitable and powerful. And that those books naturally or supernaturally are going to have an effect on those who read them. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord breaks the rocks into pieces. So we're not looking for books that only had a small acceptance or that only partook of certain traditions or that were widely rejected by the church. Put it this way, in a stack of writings, the books that are truly scripture, we should expect them to rise to the top very quickly. And that
1: kind of flows from the the hidden thing, right? Like, oh, we, and that's why every time that we see like, oh, we discovered this new gospel, you don't have to wonder as a Christian, oh, should I go check that out and see? Because the answer is, well, no, it, it wasn't accepted right it, yes. it didn't receive it didn't receive wide understanding and acceptance it wasn't shown to be powerful and and, and used of the holy spirit in the church and therefore it's it, it it isn't god's word right even even just by that and i think that's not the same thing as saying oh the church didn't pick this one right no. we're not going back to that view we're saying no, no no the the it is clear even from history to see the books that throughout the church have been received and understood, and by the way, from very early on.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into some of that, right? about the dates of some of these things that being accepted. These
1: books were just immediately received supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and everybody said, yep, that that is that is different. That is God's word. And then there are books that from very early on, people who knew about them and read them, they weren't confused. They did not not know. They read them and saw them and said, you know what? Either in some cases they said, you know what, this is a great one, love this book, but it's it's not God's word. It's just a great book. Or they said, you know, th- this is something wrong with this. It, it's the the Holy Spirit isn't
0: witnessing this to me. I'm going to leave this be. And this doesn't. This is not a very twenty first century argument. Although maybe it will become more so as, as postmodernism takes hold. But early on in the church, the the attributes of Scripture was a big deal to them. They're like these are, these are divine attributes about them. Right. And that you could just tell by reading them and that it accorded with the, the received tradition. So number four, okay, so they've been written, they've been revealed, they've been accepted. Number four, we should expect that at some point there would be a process of compilation and formal approval. If God is giving us a Bible, we should expect that at some point the church will say, all right, this is this is it. We've, we have received this from the Lord. That God who is inspiring the spirit, the scripture, but his spirit is also working in the church, We should expect that the readers would recognize these as special and create an authoritative list. And we should trust that God would make this come about. If God has in his mind a list of authoritative scripture, then we should expect him to ensure the recognition of that list. So really we're leaning into the sovereignty of God here, that he's not going to allow this to be corrupted. He's not going to allow it to be mangled and and disfigured by clueless Christians. So we should expect that there would be a process of compilation, and and there was that, and uh, we'll talk about it more in, in a little bit. But 397 A.D. was the formal approval of the the canon at the Council of Carthage, and um, even before that, there was there was widespread agreement on what these books were.
1: Yep, and and again, this is we're, we're we're relying on the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit to do this work. In in this view, we're not saying right, oh yeah, we'll we'll these people's acceptance of it somehow gave it that authority, right? That's, that's not what we're saying. We're saying God's Holy Spirit had authority first. Exactly. And they and that's, it. that's what I think is beautiful about this view, by the way, is it really forces you, when you said it's not a 21st century view, I don't see that as a bad thing. It really forces you as a Christian to remember that you're when you're coming to the canon of Scripture, you're accepting the Bible's authority. You're not giving the Bible authority no. by by allowing it a place in your life, or oh, I read this and and I obey it, so it becomes authoritative to me. No, no, no. You're you're, you're accepting what is pre-existing in the Word of God, which is that it's God's word and it and it has authority and power, and you're just you're just allowing that to work in your life and humbling yourself before it right. right
0: this isn't reader response theory where no i read it and it's meaningful to me therefore it's meaningful no the reason it gives meaning to you is because there's meaning in it and what's cool meaning.
1: what's cool about this is we're just but we're just connecting to the group of people who have always said that about scripture the very first people in the church who received and accepted these writings were doing the exact same thing we're doing they were under the witness of the holy spirit they were saying yes this is God's word." I'm gonna i I accept and agree with that, and I allow it to have that impact in my life because i I see supernaturally that's what's going on, right? And so I love that it's not this view isn't relying on human logic and um, I mean, it's not to say that it's irrational or something. I just mean it's we're not relying on human decisions or human. Wisdom. We're we're literally saying, no, this is God's
0: spirit doing this work. And I think that's important. This is God's wisdom. And number five is that we should expect that God would preserve the list across time. Looking Mm. back to God's sovereignty, that if he's going to bring it about, he's going to, he's going to bring about remarkable consistency and widespread unanimity in the canon, which is exactly what, what we've seen. And... Uh, really the only objection that you can raise to this view is a naturalistic one. If you're saying that, well, I don't believe in God, well, then of course this is nonsense to you. Or if you say, well, I don't think God ever intended for there to be a canon of Scripture. Well, then the burden of proof is upon you to demonstrate that. And you're, you're left with your own authority and your own ideas or calling upon other people's authority. But if we, what we do is if we work through these five points, you can at least say this, we live in a world that is exactly the kind of world we should expect if God were to inspire the canon. So so very quickly as I go back through this, has there been canonical consistency across time? Yes, there has. You're reading the same Old Testament that Jesus had and the same New Testament that was read in the earliest churches. Yep. It's, it's not been unanimous, but it's been overwhelmingly consistent. Did God oversee the process of accepting the canon? Yes, as I said, the the church had accepted and and. Not formalized, but agreed upon the canon as early as the 2nd century, the 100s, right? And there was no big fight. We're going to talk about this. There was no big Mm. fight over what books belonged in. That's ahistorical. Number three, these books did impact the world, and they continue to impact the world. You know, we've had access to the Didache for as long as we've had access to the Bible But even those that have read it, it's just not the same. It's not the same impact that the scriptures have. Of course, each one has been written. And of course, each one's been revealed to the world. So we cannot start from a view from a world that doesn't have the Bible. We have the Bible. So we take what the Bible says about itself. And we try to see if the testimony the Bible has about itself lines up the world and with the world in which we live. And it does. So, this is not circular reasoning. This is all right. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what we ought to expect if it's true, and it turns out that what we ought to expect is in fact what we have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing is that, you know we did use the, the the phrase circular reasoning to talk about some of the views, and and any time that you use any time that you are having a spiritual discussion about you know yes part of this is you're going to accept this by faith and and the Holy Spirit is going to minister that to you and so is is this going to be a discussion where you're going to be able to logically debate and prove this to somebody especially if it's not a person who has the witness of the Holy Spirit in their heart right if they're not saved I'll just say as a believer to other believers I'll encourage you this is a discussion that is really best had I'll just say I think often with believers and the reason why I say that, does that mean that you can't have this discussion with a non-believer? No, but I'm just saying that that non-believer doesn't see spiritual things spiritually, right? Because the Holy Spirit, they're, they're not regenerate. And no, so,
0: it says in 1 Corinthians that the natural man cannot receive the things of God right. for they are spiritually discerned. Right,
1: and so this is the kind of thing where if you carefully explain this to a believer... What they're gonna often say oh well that yeah that makes sense oh okay because it's not just their logic that's being employed but the Holy Spirit is doing that work in their heart giving them the faith and the understanding if you try and explain the exact same thing to an unbeliever they're gonna scoff at you and say that doesn't make sense it's just circular even though I, I genuinely I don't think that it is a circular argument but it will seem circular to a person who's already decided that there's no potential for the supernatural no, element it's, it's it.
0: not circular reasoning so mm-hmm. logically it is not circular reasoning right the question is not if it's circular. The question is whether or not the premises are true. And the f- right. most important premise is that God brought about the Scripture. <laughs> right, right, right. If you, do, you say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then we disagree about that. Right. And it's, it's not that my logic is false. You disagree that God doesn't exist. And I would say this, too, to, to those of you that are listening and questioning this, it's important that you know that I am not asking you to believe in a book that has been compiled and assembled by men, for mm. men. Uh-huh. Or that I'm asking you to believe just in certain historical facts and hold certain historical opinions. I'm asking you to believe as I do that God has spoken, that these things are true because it came from God and God can only speak true, that the church accepted this because God wrote it and the church recognized that in the scriptures. And if you don't accept that, you don't accept that, but you do need to accept that that's what we believe Mm. and that we judge everything by that, which is why we very often judge even the church by the scriptures and even the world around us by the scriptures because we believe it came from God.
1: And also, isn't that, like, just real quick, isn't that so much easier to understand and accept by faith than the idea that, oh, I have to I have to accept any group of Christians. If, I, if my trust in scripture was based on the decisions of any, you know, group of believers, even, even godly believers who are trying their best, or any group of historians, or any set of historical facts, I think I can't have the same trust in that at all is to say oh no i i, I do i believe that god is true yes D- did god say that he gave us his word yes okay well then should i expect his word to be true
0: yes right that's i can place my faith in that right right and as we've said this is a theological issue mm-hmm. the, the decision of what books belong in the bible is a theological issue yeah jesus said in john chapter 10 verses 26 through 27 he said to those that were challenging him he said you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus himself said that those that were not his followers were not able to recognize what he said as true. Mm-hmm. We believe that, that there is a connection that Christians have with Jesus himself, not with the history, with Christ himself right. and his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so we alone are equipped to speak to this issue. You can speak maybe to what happened historically or speak to what the church said, but you cannot speak to whether or not the Holy Spirit has spoken if he does not dwell within you. Mm. And this is an important thing for us to remember. This is an in-house discussion. There yep. are 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New, because that is what God has given us. So let's move on now to talk about the writing process. So we we know what the canon is is and and how we theologically understand it. But let's take a look at the process and how the Bible came about and how it was written. So what actually happened when the pen touched the page? Isn't that remarkable to think about that? do, Do you think these guys, I'm sure some of them did, but you know, had any idea really what was happening as they, they put down that quill for the first time and began to write i think it would have know, been easier it's, to it's know if you were right? having like a prophetic vision of some kind i think
1: you might well, have yeah, john in revelation <laughs> right. maybe but you <laughs> but know. if you're just paul you know writing your emails basically i think it might maybe later on maybe somebody was said paul like did, did you know like did, that was and, pretty good and, yeah paul.
0: and i'm sure paul would have said i didn't know at the time but now i'm realizing that's what the lord was doing or david when he penned some of these short exactly. little psalms yeah, yeah, you know yeah. but yeah. but this is the process that the word is inscripturation Hmm. This is the mechanics, you might say, of scripture production. And the Bible talks about this. And we read this verse last time, but this is 1 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. Zach, do you want to read that for us?
1: Um, Yes, it says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for privacy, uh, sorry, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy
0: Spirit. All right, so there you go. We have the prophetic word confirmed, that no prophecy of Scripture is any of anybody's private interpretation. This is not just, you know, my voice speaking. No, no, no. It says men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And especially in this case, the prophets he's referring to is the Old Testament, that it was confirmed by the life of Jesus, that everything that Jesus did confirmed that what the prophets had written was accurate. And so he's affirming the supernatural character of the word of God and tells us, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place. And that's an easy application, right? So we need to know this before we begin. He says, knowing first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, no prophecy of scripture came from anyone's own ideas. Zach, why does that matter?
1: I mean, if it didn't come from anyone's own ideas, then like it's kind of like the idea of, again, where does the authority come from? If if when I read something in the Bible, I can weigh it just how I read what anybody else wrote, right? Like Tyler, you've written some books and I think they're really great books, right? I've read them and they've been edifying to me. But if, if I come across something in those books that I disagree with, and and maybe I even disagree with it scripturally or whatever, I'm weighing it and I'm saying, okay, well, you know, maybe he was wrong on this point or, you know, I don't actually, I think it might be more like this. If I can do that, right, then I can do that with anything in in your book that you wrote. And honestly, that's, that's exactly how I can treat your book. I read it and I say, does this make sense to me? Do I believe that this is good godly advice or whatever? But we we can't approach the Bible in that way, right? If we start to say, no, 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 you know, Paul wrote that, but I actually like this over here instead, which kind of disagrees with it in my mind. Yeah. All of a sudden, where is the authority? The authority goes back to me now as the reader. And that's why he's saying, no, prophecy is not for private interpretation because this
0: didn't come from a man privately and therefore you don't get to decide on it privately as a man. Right. You don't get to interpret it according to your own issues. But also, I mean, it's referring to the... The writing process itself, that Hmm. we're not just looking at the ideas of Isaiah and Jeremiah and James and Paul and Peter. That's not what we have. We have God's words recorded through these men. They did not just make these up and, and come up with them themselves. And we talked last time that God did not violate their personality as they wrote these things down, but he oversaw the process. He says prophecy never came by the will of man. And that's a, that's a major thing to remember because that's a big push in the church right now is not to view prophecy, especially predictive prophecy, as inspired, but as, oh, this was a kind of a sanctified imagination. But Peter explicitly says that's not it. They spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired as they wrote. This is Why that matters is because the authority didn't come later. When the church said, oh, yes, we agree. And this is going to be our official position. Like you're approving a platform at a, at a party convention. He says, that as they wrote this down, they were inspired by the Lord. They were moved. The word is pharomenoi in, in, he, in the Greek. He says, they were carried along. They were, they were brought along in an unseen process by the Holy Spirit they were guided as they wrote it down so in jeremiah 1 verse 9 god said to jeremiah i have put my words in your mouth what this means is that it was scripture the moment the ink was dry when james completed his letter it was canon Mm. it was written down because god had overseen the process when paul handed the letter of romans to be delivered it was canon even though no one had even read it yet, because God had inspired it. This is why we place such an emphasis, as we said last week, on the autographs, the original documents, because anything that was changed later is a deviation from what God inspired. Right. So we believe that this happened supernaturally. And we even can see this process in, in, in the Scripture as they talk about their writing process. And God said to John, write God said to Moses, <laughs> right. write this down and deliver it to the people. So that's, that's in scripturation. And and I think it's important to know that Zach, that right, that the meaning didn't come later. It, well, it came immediately because well, it was from the Lord.
1: Well, again, like you said, the locus of authority is the fancy word that you used that locus matters. Right. So, so, and, and as a Christian, can't I, you know, I, I can rest so much easier in the canon of scripture. If I know that I can trust that that, place of authority is with God not with people right and so if i can say no 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 even in the actual physical process of the writing this is god's word through a human writing agent not not a, a well you know paul wrote this so if i understand paul's you know c- culture then i can understand that that applies there but it doesn't apply over here now all of a sudden that feels so free and liberating but what it really is is it's actually trapping me in having to figure out line by line what i still you
0: know what authority of man i'll accept and and folks do that it's it's so culturally tied and it's it's less personal bias but it's cultural bias and and Paul said this here, but that's also what his culture said. So we don't have to listen to that. And the irony of it is we feel so enlightened. And what we're doing is we're using the excuse of culture to impose our own culture on the oh, on yeah, the Bible. For, for sure, but for no, sure. as it was written, the process of inscripturation right. was overseen by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that some last time. So now we can look at... The process, the evaluation of accepting the canon. And there was a process. And this is good to know because if you've grown up in an evangelical church, very often we have this picture in our mind of what it was like when the Bible was written. Or maybe uh-huh. we've never even considered it before. Yeah, right. And the first time you're forced to consider it is when a very angry, aggressive activist in your freshman history of <laughs> religion class puts all these numbers and facts and, and you know, theories in front of you and you think, well, wait a minute, what else have I been lied to about? So there was a process. God used it for his own purposes. And we should be grateful that we get to live in a time where it's, it's already been done. So I think this is Michael Kruger as well. When he said, in one sense, there was a canon, the minute pen touched paper because it was inspired of God. Right. In another sense, canon became canon when the church started using it as scripture, which happened almost immediately, as mm-hmm. we will see. But also, canon became canon in our formal definition in 397, when the the, the documents were formally approved. And so there was a, you know, 350-some-year process. And that should not trip you up. But what trips us up is people have so many misconceptions that have entered into so-called common knowledge that need to be addressed. And there's especially guys like Bart Ehrman, who's made it his mission to dismantle the church's understanding of the canon. Uh, and, and books like The Da Vinci Code, which are fiction, but, you know, people take their ideas from that. Sure. A- and they say, well, you know that this is what happened in the early church. and No, don't do that. Right? Yeah. Not, not every book that's published on this or everything you find online is is true. Well, what are some of the misconceptions that come from that, Zach? We'll talk about the details as we go on, but just what are some broad ones?
1: I'll just broadly say that, like, again, as a person who where history is kind of a hobby of mine, I just want to encourage believers not everything that you find that talks about the Bible or talks about history around the Bible is a good source. And I'm I'm, just, I'm not even trying to be mean or nasty when I say that. I just genuinely mean, like, I, I'm concerned that you a lot of believers will bring me something and I'll say, you know, like, this isn't even considered to be a good source by scholars who aren't believers and don't believe in the Bible. And they still look at this and they say, no, nah, that's not actually good history. So I think a good, safe, again, we're talking about how this is a, an issue within the church. We have already recommended and we'll keep recommending some authors that you are just, they're going to do a good job of interpreting and looking at this from a godly perspective. And that's not to hide from other ideas out there. I'm just to, to, to tell you that there are people out there that are writing things that you read and you think, you know, oh, wow, that's so scary and so powerful. And then you find out that actually that research that they've done has been historically widely debunked for years, like almost a hundred years in some cases. Right, And
0: folks who have an ax to grind against the church will pick it up because it's a, it's another bullet in their chamber, but it can be, you know, yeah. the one of the misconceptions is that there was, you know, bullies in the church that beat down alternate points of view and that, sure. you know, we only have the winners of the, of the canon battle. Uh, another one is that, it was established by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, which is just, that's simply not true. Right. Uh, there's been all kinds, of, or that it wasn't established until hundreds or thousands of years later, also not true. So let's look at the actual process here. And I want to start with the Old Testament and, and kind of how we got the Old Testament. And it's unique in the Old Testament because it took so long. It was written over a thousand years The the events that the Old Testament covers and the books were written very, very closely. So writing began at the time of Moses, which we would hold to the early date, which is 1400s BC. Others would have a slightly later date, but not much. And it concluded in approximately 435 BC with the book of Malachi. And we already talked about the inscripturation. So the question we're asking now is, well, when were they evaluated and accepted as scripture? You can actually see this happening in the Bible as you read it. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy thirty-one twenty-six. This is the end of Moses' life. He says to Joshua, take this book of the law, put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. So he's saying, this book that I've just written, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, if that's not authority,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what is it. Right yeah. there,
0: he's saying, this is to be your authority. 1 Samuel 10.25 says that Samuel wrote a book and laid it up before the Lord. So Samuel there is writing something, and he's laying it before the Lord. And it's probably the book you're reading right now in, in 1 Samuel. Jeremiah thirty six verse four says, Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him." So what we see here is there's, there's over a thousand years, but you're watching the process of canonization happen. And this is exactly what we said earlier, that there was very little delay between the completion of a biblical book and its acceptance into the canon. You've got already, you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are referring back to Exodus. And the prophets will refer to the Torah and the Psalms will refer to the events of the historical books. Like these writings are informed by one another and accepted as scripture by one another. So this is important because there are some that want to try to add books to the Old Testament, and we'll discuss those in a moment. But there's a very important set of books that we have. Right, Zach? We see this happening as you read it it unfolds right in front of you without you even noticing
1: as you read it and scripture is referencing itself and then also you got to you know by by the time certainly by the time of let's say you know by Jesus time you, you got to remember the jews are the, are are one of the most careful and and picky and and watchful keepers of written tradition that of any culture that's ever been historically i mean yes. they that's literally a fo- foundational part of jewish cultural and religious life is we are keepers of books and we we are very careful and we do it in a certain way. And, and that's, that is one of the reasons why, I mean, also it's that the Holy Spirit is using that to to preserve scripture, but it's one of the reasons why we have the books that we do today from, from, you know, of, of these, these
0: writings. So, And, and Jesus shared that attitude, and yes. he was alive. Yes, yes, right? yes,
1: yes. Well, I mean, and you see that from the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry. I mean, he's quoting I, I heard and I don't know if this is true, Tyler, but I heard that there's you you basically is this is this talking about the Old Testament? I believe that if we didn't even have Old Testament writings, we could essentially reconstruct large, large portions of the Old Testament just from quotations of, of it in the New
0: Testament. Well, that is certainly true. I think the quote you're thinking of refers to the New Testament and the writings of the church fathers. That we can recreate sorry, something yes, like 95% right. of the New Testament Our just fathers. by the writings of the church fathers. Yes, but, yes, yes. I mean, you're right. I mean, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament all the time. Yeah, And he challenged them with it. In Luke 24, 44, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That is the tripartite, the three-part division of the Old Testament that the Jews had, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Jesus said everything and every part needed to be fulfilled. And the New Testament quotes from the Old 300 times. So yeah. the, I should say, theologically, the fact that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament is all that I need to do to say, okay, I'm on board with that And too. that's
1: an important note because sometimes, you know, well-meaning people, right? I don't think they mean to, eat, Some most of them, I don't think they even mean to, they're not trying to put the old testament on a lower footing or something but they'll just say things like well you know i really think that that w- what jesus said and, and and did is the most important thing oh, what, yeah. and and here's mm. the thing i i understand even sometimes what people mean but you have to you have to you have to be honest with that if if you really do think what jesus said and did was the most important thing one of the things jesus said and did was ratify the authority of and quote from and use in his ministry the writings of Scripture in the Old Testament. Yeah. Which it, were the only existing Scripture at the time. So, and,
0: and that carries on to the, the rest of the New Testament as well. Yes. And anytime you see a reference in the New Testament to the Scriptures, right, it's talking about the Old Testament. That's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. You've known them from childhood. Well, when Timothy was a child, there was no New Testament. So right. he could only be referring to the Old Testament. And and, and this is so important like you said, to those, I've heard those, as oh, I just want to look at the words of Jesus. And usually what that means is they've got a progressive agenda and they have a very, mm-hmm. very uh, soft windowpane view of Jesus, that he was kind of this this Native American shaman that just spoke in these pithy aphorisms without realizing, no, Jesus actually had quite a bit to say. Not one jot or tittle shall be removed from the Old Testament exactly. until it's been fulfilled. So, yeah. Uh, So we know that. The Old Testament affirmed it as it was being written. Jesus was on board. The New Testament was on board. Let's talk, though, there is some debate, or was, about which books exactly constituted the Old Testament. No one seriously ever challenged the books that we have now, but there's a wide body of literature from Malachi through Matthew that is widely known as the Old Testament Apocrypha or the pseudepigrapha. We sometimes use the word pseudepigrapha to distinguish from the New Testament Apocrypha, which is something else entirely. Uh, Apocrypha means secret or hidden. And this is something that should be eye-opening to us because we believe that we're not looking for hidden books. We're not looking for secrets. We're looking for Hmm. God to reveal these things. So while various books of the Old Testament Apocrypha have been used or recommended in the church, there has never been wide acceptance of their status as canon, either in the church or in the Jewish community, which should be definitive for us. There's always somebody that wants to bring up one of these books and say, we ought to add it. But even the Jews did not accept these as scripture. And even the new uh, the church fathers who read and made use of these books acknowledged they were not scripture. So uh, these would include, help me out, Zach, the, the books of the Maccabees, the uh, the Book of Enoch, right? Yeah, there's some extra Bell bits. To Daniel,
1: right? Yeah, Bell and the Daniel, which is, Bell in the Dragon, which is an extra bit to Daniel. Sirach, uh, Book of Enoch, and and again, like you, exactly like you said, the two things you said that I think are important to remember. The first thing is that you, you, you said something really important, which is that there was never wide disagreement about any of the books that we currently have in the Old Testament canon. So, no. So, what, what, meaning meaning. And and this is important because sometimes people will say, "Oh well, you know, it's it's all disputed and nobody really knows why we have no we, we we have the books in our old and new testament canon because those books have not been there there has not been historical documentation that we have of a, you know and then half the church decided that the book of you know the book of Isaiah really wasn't any good that's that's not the case no yeah. right so now. It, and there's a difference we see a dividing line between those books that we have in our current canon and some of these books in the pseudepigrapha or the or the New Testament apocrypha those books there was widespread dispute and that's why there's portions of the church large portions of the church today that don't ex- accept them and yeah, so i think that's a sure. major difference and again we got to go back to our our idea of the ont- the what the ontological argument you call it the the, the self you know
0: self-determining self-determining
1: model if if we're accepting a model that God wrote and then God's Holy Spirit is going to be over the entire process from writing to reception and use of the canon, then the idea that somehow God's Holy Spirit would fail in that, or it would only happen halfway, or that part of the church would accept, other parts wouldn't, to me, doesn't fit with that understanding of the, that the canon is going to be something the Holy Spirit is going to make sure gets into the hands and the hearts of every believer. And so I, I, I yeah. totally don't have any problem with believing that there are some documents that some Christians accepted, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're they, they should be received
0: yeah and it's important for us to know i mean what was said uh for example in jude 14 and 15 he quotes from the book of enoch yeah mm-hmm. and we don't shy away from that or try to explain it away he quotes from it uh paul in second timothy 3 verse 8 makes reference to Janus and jambres which were the traditional names of the magicians that pharaoh had which comes from the old testament pseudepigrapha right. so we, we don't need to worry about that i mean paul also quoted from Uh, Epimenides, who was a Greek poet. That doesn't mean that he's saying everything he said was right. He's saying this thing was right. So early on in church history, the Pseudepigrapha was read. It was even recommended as beneficial. Uh, There were a few who wanted it to be included in the canon. Augustine, for example, had a few that he he preferred. Uh, But the most of the church fathers were wary of it and, and even warned against it. Athanasius, was one who warned against it. And we end up going with Athanasius' final lists, I think rightly so. And Jerome too. Now, Jerome is important because he was the first one to translate the Bible into Latin. And he included the pseudepigrapha when he translated it. And some have made a big deal out of this. So ah, See, the Vulgate had the pseudepigrapha, so we should include Maccabees and so on. But in his in his writing about his translation, he says that they should, quote, not be used to apply to establish any doctrine. Mm. So they're beneficial. Maccabees is good history, for example. Ooh, it's very it's, important. It's history, edifying actually. to yeah. your spirit, maybe. Yep. But it's not used to establish doctrine. If it says it there, but it doesn't say it anywhere else in the scripture, you don't use it. So we've got to remember that. Jesus never once made reference to it. The apostolic references are, are, are negligible. And and as we've said, from the Jewish perspective, there there are, there are differences of opinion as to when the actual date was set of the Old Testament. But at the very least, it's clear that by the Council of Gemini in 90 AD, there was an official list of Old Testament books that were considered inspired, and the pseudepigrapha was not included in that. So that's the latest date that is discussed when there was a formal acceptance, which is actually right around the time the New Testament was being finished as well. I find that very interesting. And they in other said, words, we should, these again, are
1: our books, right? Right. In other words, we should accept, look at the orderliness of it, that at some point now, as the New Testament has been completed, being written, the canon now all becomes closed at the same time. The Lord officially works in the hearts of everybody through the church to say, you know what? We, we th- this is, this is God's word and, and it's closed, it's done now. And, and he does yep. that with both the Old and the New Testaments at the same time, which again,
0: kind of makes sense, right? That you would accept, you would expect that. Yeah. And Josephus, some I mean, of y'all know who he was. He was a Jewish historian, lived around the time of the early church. And he said, after 435 BC, which is Malachi, there were no more words of God added to scripture. And that was the the pre- prevalent and official Jewish view at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the question though is, well, there are certain Christian traditions that have some of these books in their canon. So the Catholic church, for example, includes some of the Old Testament apocrypha. So Why is that? Well, let's get into a little bit of history here. The Reformation happens in the 1400s and 1500s. And Martin Luther and the other reformers were insisting on sola scriptura, Mm -hmm. which means doctrine can only be established by scripture. And at that point, the doctrine of canon became of greater importance than it had been for a very long time, since the days of maybe Arius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what yeah. is scripture matters because they're blowing apart doctrines like purgatory because it's nowhere in the Bible. And they said, no, you and they said, well church tradition and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli are saying, yeah, well church tradition can say whatever it wants. It's not scripture. Right. So in 1546, at the Council of Trent, which was the Roman response to the Reformation, The Catholic Church in 1546 bestowed canonical status on a number of apocryphal books. They took some Old Testament apocrypha and added them to the canon in 1546 because they wanted those books to be used in order to support the doctrines that the reformers were tearing down. So the idea of, as I said, purgatory is a great example. That that's that's nowhere in scripture. And they say, Well, it is now because we've added it to the canon. <laughs> Right, and, and, and with a date that's that late, like, awful.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh well, yeah, it is. And with a date that late, I think it should be pretty simple for us to look at that and say, well, hang on a second. Well, one of these things isn't like the other, right? Yeah. Here's all these. Here's all these books of scripture that have been accepted, but by the time we get to fifteen forty, was fifteen forty six? By the time we get there, there's our there's been basically all the rest of the books have been accepted for almost fifteen hundred years, but all of a sudden we have these latecomers to the party that need to be quick added in. That in itself should raise our eyebrows and say, well, hold up. Hold on a minute, right? And this is why I think it's so vital that we don't we don't believe in in the only church authority model of, of why we we have you know scriptural inspiration in the canon. Because yeah, if we did, is, then we would have to submit ourselves to whatever decisions a, a council made. And I think in from my view looking at this, you can pretty clearly see that in this case, the council was endeavoring to do a, a more um, a more this worldly real politic calculated decision than a Holy Spirit influenced
0: acceptance of, of the word of God. Yeah. This is exactly how we don't do Canon, right? which is we're we're stuck because we're believing things that the Bible doesn't prove. So we make an amendment to the Bible right. in order to support what we say. And, and obviously the Catholic church has moved from that those days, but they still retain what's called the Deutero Canon, the secondary Canon. And, and if, in my understanding, in, in some traditions, they, these are canon, but they're like secondary. So, you know, they're not the most important, but they're still there. But uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church includes its own set of pseudepigraphal writings. Those were not added until the 1600s or later. That's so, I mean, you know, time, there guys. were people colonizing America when they added books to the Bible. It's a little late, friends. So yeah. the Protestant Church does not recognize these things. They hold to the, for all all the those higher church traditions talk of church tradition. It's actually, in this case, the Protestants who are holding to the most ancient traditions and not going along with it. So Mm. there is some value to the Old Testament apocrypha. The early Christians read it, but it's not scripture. And and when they are used to establish doctrine over and against what the rest of the Bible says, then we're we're in trouble. But all this to say, the Old Testament has a very solid foundation. There's a few kind of weird birds flitting around its head. But according to our definition of canon, the 39 books that we have today can be trusted with all the marks of inspiration that we talked about last time. And we frankly, we do not have the authority or the historical knowledge to propose any serious changes. Uh, We are not going to be that arrogant to say, well, now we're finally at a place where we know this should be there or shouldn't be there. Uh, it's I'm always astonished by by scholars that want to try to do this well you
1: know. that's kind of our whole our whole suggestion here right or what really what we've been what we've been learning and what we agree with is that no you know the, the authority for this doesn't come from us we're not going to be the ones that are going to point to scripture and say I don't I don't like that piece or that piece we're, we're just responding to what the Lord has done with his word and so okay so that's the Old Testament now now how where did the New Testament come from
0: well this is actually much easier to look at um, because we, we're so assured of the New Testament that we can use it to verify the Old Testament. So there are 27 books in the New, written by several authors over a period of about 50 years. So right there, you can see the comparative simplicity of the New Testament. A period of about 50 years, so you know before the end of the, of the first century, only a handful of authors. Jesus died on the cross, rose, ascended to heaven around 30 AD. The earliest epistles, which are... Typically, Galatians or 1 Thessalonians were written in the 50s, around 50 A.D. The last book, Revelation, is generally accepted to be completed around 90 A.D. So right there it's 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 much easier. And we can confirm these dates in a number of ways. There has been a, a an accepted belief in the church for a while that the, the the New Testament was written over hundreds of years, and these were added. Much, much later, and they could mm. they couldn't have been written early because the doctrine was too developed, <laughs> and and they believed in the resurrection, the deity of Christ, and and Zach, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Walter Bauer and, and his whole theory and how that gained traction in the church?
1: Yeah, and uh, just, as well as I can remember, and again, uh, Krueger's books. There's two. Uh, the, there's the the the. Canon revisited book, and there's the Heresy of Orthodoxy, which I.
0: I yeah, read that one. The Heresy of Orthodoxy by Michael highly, Kruger and Andreas Toschkin. And
1: the reason why that Heresy of Orthodoxy book is important is they're talking about. This idea, and it's a historical idea that's been argued, right? Which is that, okay, you know, there was there was so many different Christ, you know, Christianities, and there was different beliefs and different ideas and different canons, and it was all floating around in this big stew, and then all of a sudden, the big bad church council came and they put down all the ones they didn't like, and that's the one we wound up with is the one they decided. And this idea, and I'm trying to I'm trying to put this in as simple terms. I'm, not, I'm I'm not trying to be just attacking or angry. I'm just declaring, based on the best scholarship that we have at this time that idea is not historically accurate um it's right. it's it's essentially at this point a myth and i'm what i mean by that is it was based on supposition and guesses and and thought that were made before we had some very important data we have now <laughs> and that data right. that we have now tells us that that belief isn't historically tenable. You can't think that based on the fact that we have texts, like you said, that go back so early, right? Scriptural texts and then writings of the people themselves documenting their beliefs. And, and, and we see, oh, wow, all of the doctrines that we thought were kind of later inventions were not. They were being taught and, and spread to the church it incredibly early all of the texts that we had been saying years ago oh yeah those are way come from later no we have examples of them to the earliest dates and therefore and and by the way all of the supposed other christianities that were going on have no documentation or were incredibly fringe and and we have documentation of, of
0: the scriptures we have
1: right and so therefore this idea that you know oh, well, this was all kind of up in the air until very recently. Well, we just,
0: that no longer holds historical water. No, this was a theory advanced in the late 1800s. Right. That this is probably what happened. And this was taught as gospel, mm-hmm. right? And and New Testament was interpreted that way. Yes. That sophisticated doctrines take time to develop. And that's true unless the Lord is giving them to you. Right. But now that, I mean, the one of the oldest ones we have now is called the Rylands Fragment which is a piece of the Gospel of John. It's a papyrus from the Gospel of John that has been dated to between 100 and about 115 A.D., which is incredibly it's early. Insane, yeah. First of all, because it's on papyrus, which means it had to have been transferred to Egypt and then being, been written down in the Alexandrian style, which means that John, which is considered by many to be the latest gospel, I right. would agree with that. Uh, his, church history tells us that, and has such developed doctrines, Jesus saying things like, I and the Father are one. The people said John was, had to have been one of the latest books because the church needed time to make up all these crazy ideas about Christ. But now we're just, one of the oldest ones we have is of John. And we keep on finding new ones. And they're getting older and older and older. And there's an awesome scholarship you can look into on that. But let's talk about the story here. So how do we know that, what was the story of acceptance like here, okay? In the first few centuries of the church, there was no official list of authoritative texts, right? There was no table of contents in your Bible. First of all, this is because the letters have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire and it was harder to get things spread around those days, but also because there was not very much dispute about what books needed to be used. So the canon was, we might say, accepted, but not formally approved. There were external forces that made it necessary for us to publicly say these are the ones we accept. There were guys like Marcion who was a heretic who really hated Jews and didn't believe in the Old Testament God as the same as Jesus and he uh, made his own canonical list and so there were men like I think Irenaeus and others that reacted to him and mm. the Gnostics had their own ideas writing their own weird things uh for a couple hundred years, and and here's an odd historical thing: in 303 A.D., Emperor Diocletian launched a horrible persecution against the church. Yeah, and one of the the things that they commanded was all sacred books of the church had to be burned. And so the church, in order to preserve their scriptures, agreed on on some authoritative lists in order to preserve them. So that means by the end of the the second and third centuries, we've reached near unanimity on the New Testament canon. Eusebius in particular has a a great little section in his uh, church history where he's talking about what lists the church were using. And at this point, it was very early on. And he's saying, these are the ones that everybody accepts. These are the ones that some accept, but others are not quite so sure about. And, And it's, really fascinating to to read that so sometimes uh, an apocryphal new testament book would slide in like first clement or something and slide out but um the canon was being established and and um michael kruger loves to say the core was established very very early and uh contrary to popular opinion zach and i know you love to talk about this the church was not wide open to letting in new books. They were actually very skeptical and very rigorous in how they went through the process of canonical and you can uh, recognition. See this,
1: you can see this from very early, right? Eusebius isn't even one of the earliest of the people that wrote about this, but when you read, I've, I've recently read Eusebius's church history, and of course, you know, now people are like, well, it, it, you know, he had this axe to grind, or he had, okay, yeah, every, every writer has a perspective, right? But you can very early read from Eusebius's church history where he says things like, Yes, yes, we, we, we know about that book, right? Yes, yeah. yes, we we all know that, that that this person claimed to write a gospel, or that this person wrote an epistle. We're aware, but we read it, and we don't believe that it's God's word, so we don't accept it, and we don't we don't allow it to be read in church, right? And and so the, the, uh, unfortunately, they're kind of got this idea came got steam that like all of these books have somehow been hidden away, and the church has either suppressed them so that nobody knows about them, or just didn't know about them at all. But when the reality is, if you do a little bit of homework, you can realize that as far back as Eusebius, one of the the old, the first church historian of that kind that we have, he's already noting. Yes, we know about these heretical documents we have read them, we examined them, we did our due diligence, and, and we, we decided that these are not God's word and we won't let people read them in scripture. So these things yeah. have been well known for literally the longest possible time.
0: Yeah, and so this needs to debunk the idea that maybe you've heard that there are all these church groups clamoring for their favorite book to be included. That's not what happened historically. Mm-hmm. The church was much more willing to say no to something that was disputed than to accept something because they really liked it. Uh, Charles Ryrie in his his book has three tests that the church used and he's he's organized this very well. And this is what the conversation was like when they began to get to the process of affirming certain books. And the first one was the test of authority, that the book that was written needed to be penned by an individual who was a recognized authority in the church. So this meant it had to be an apostle or a known associate of an apostle. It couldn't be Hmm. like, you know, first Bob, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Well, yeah. they're my ideas. It's like, no, God, Jesus gave the apostles authority to write, among other things. So right. anonymous books, for example, were especially scrutinized. Most anonymous works were not included because they didn't couldn't confirm who the author was. But there are books like Hebrews that was eventually included, which is anonymous. But there were any, any writing, though, that was pseudepigraphal, meaning if it was written under a false name and they knew it was written under a false name, they eliminated that altogether. So, for example, the epistle of Barnabas, which they accepted as, as teaching true doctrine. Right. They said this is, this is right in what it claims. However, we know that Barnabas didn't write it and God would not allow his scripture to be written under a lie. So right there, you can see the early church had a doctrine of inerrancy, despite what people say. Right. So, um, you know, people said Paul maybe wrote Hebrews, but even back then they knew that the Bible doesn't say. So that one went through a a couple extra rounds of testing and approval, but it had to be written by somebody that, that they knew, which is why we have books by a very narrow list of authors. Second, the book had to show internal evidence of its uniqueness and evidence of its inspiration. So you couldn't just be, oh, Paul wrote it. No, you have to be able to read it, and like we talked about, that impact, those divine qualities associated with it. Zach, you want to talk about that, what that was like?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so one of them, for example, like the uh, first Clement is like, people liked it, but then they said, "You know what? But it, it refers to this mythical creature, a phoenix, and we we don't that's not real. This is mm-hmm. the early church now where they're they're already making these decisions. You know what? This is that's not a real animal and God wouldn't include something that is mythical or fake in 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 a book that we're going to receive as his word and, and be authoritative and factual." So they they said, "You know what? We we we're, we're, we're going to go ahead and say that this is not in the canon because it's it's got this f- false you know, not intending as right. a lie,
0: but it just has this false piece of information. Yeah, Clement so. talks about the phoenix as evidence from nature of the resurrection. Right, but there were folks who lived in the part of the world he was referring to. It's like <laughs> it's not real. Right, meant, we don't have Clem, those. Yeah, my friend Clem. <laughs> exactly. So, so they're they're looking to see
1: does this is this book bearing fruit? Is it lining up with the accepted doctrine? Is it something that's being used? um Or sorry i don't want to skip ahead to that but like in other words are people reading this book and and is it changing them because remember this is from the earliest possible point in the church this is not just a question of do we like this or not yeah or or is this our you know is this a book that this guy is a these are people who are they are looking and waiting on the lord to see is this of the lord is it supernaturally given as god's word not just this is not just, and this is why it's hard for unbelievers to understand. We're not just talking about like making a list of your favorite books, right? This is... Do,
0: do, do, is it a hammer that breaks the exactly. rocks Exactly. D- does Is it this, a sword, right?
1: When I read this, do I recognize the effective work of God's word in my heart? And that's what they were looking for. And therefore, honestly, when you then go and read the pseudepigrapha, not like you said, or, or even something like, you know... um Oh, what's another one? It's not even pseudepigraphal. Like the Didache. The, Didache, the you know, something like New that, New Testament right? apocrypha, right? Yeah, you read these things, and you, you, for a lot of them, you don't see anything where you're saying, oh, that's not Christian at all, but you don't see anything that is a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, and and I think that's a very good and normal test to say, no, you know what? They're, they were right. Look, they they God used them to say, no, not, not
0: this one, and instead these. Yeah. Yeah. And tied to that, of course, to still talking about the internal evidence, early on in the church, oral tradition still mattered. Mm-hmm. Now, you still had people that knew apostles or were close enough that they had, they had maintained solid traditions or that you could check, right? You could ask somebody like Papias, who had been right. a disciple of John, and say, is this what John said? And he could, he could check for you. The third test, so number one was the test of authority. Number two was internal evidence. And the third is whether or not the book had been circulated and accepted by the church as a whole. Mm. This is so key. The church fathers were not taking applications for new scripture, right? They were only and exclusively analyzing books that were already in widespread use in the church. So this is, I think, a, a remarkable example for all of this. There were certain pockets of the church that had books that they were using, but when they realized that other members in the church hadn't even heard of them, or that they had traditions that denied the inspiration of that book, then they said, "Okay, then we were not. We will. We will deny." This, that this book is part of the canon because we're trusting the testimony of the church. The Shepherd of Hermas is an example. It's a, it's a prophetic book, very difficult to understand, in my opinion, very popular, but there were only certain corners of the church that used it so that when they got all, all got together, they said, well, we're not just going to push our own tradition. We're going to back off, which is the exact opposite of what we've been told, isn't it?
1: And again, this is what I was... Yeah, exactly. It's not, there, there were these fights of like, oh no, this is our favorite book. There were people. And this is kind of what I meant by the idea that things were, like you said, super centralized or or supernaturally centralized. They, they were not centralized in human beings. There was not this war between, well, the, this church says this and this church says that. It was the the decentralized reception and recognition among many, many, many different human beings that the Holy Spirit was working in. And then if you look at all of those decisions together, you realize that the Holy Spirit was clearly saying through the church as a body, this is my word. And then was clearly saying in some cases, this is not my word. Yes, And that is like a mind boggling thing to think about. That, that, that That's the, the process that the Lord chose to use. But how much easier for me to place my trust in than a process of, well, at some point some guys decided and... And yeah. maybe they decided because they didn't like this other guy. Like that—that that, that doesn't give me any faith at all, you know. But yeah. this is like, oh wow! Like the, the Lord is doing this work, and He's just like He always does His work. He's using these flawed humans to accomplish it, but He's not doing it in such a way that I can point to any one of them and say, "Oh, I don't trust you," so I'm now concerned about my Bible.
0: You know, right? And I encourage you all to to do some reading, some primary source reading on yes. this, uh, because it's remarkable to see the the high regard of Scripture that the the church had. So, for example, the didache, which just means teaching, uh, was was rejected because they agreed that everything in it was accurate. But they knew for sure that it was not written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. So they said, we're not just going to start including good books because they're good. <laughs> so right. they didn't include that. There were many that were skeptical of the book of Revelation, like kind of like today. But they couldn't get away from the fact that John the Apostle himself wrote that. And so they said, all right, if God gave this to John, then we need to accept it. And I think we all know, can tell for certain that it was exactly the right decision. So this is important that the churches, or then they maybe didn't use the word inerrant, but man, they certainly acted as if they did, right? The formal recognition, as I said already, of the canon came at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And this sounds like a big deal, but it was not even the primary reason for this council. It was almost a formality, because there was no disagreement about the canon at this point. There were minor discrepancies. Second Peter, for example, kind of bounced in and out of of different lists. But we ended up going with the, the most prominent church father that laid out the list that we ended up going with was Athanasius. And he gave what was called his festal letter in 367. And it was not the first list. It was not the first person that had recommended the 27 of the new, but it was the most important one and I'll give the quote that he said that was adopted and which we still believe today he said quote in these alone is the teaching of true religion proclaimed as good news let no one add to these or take anything from them and 30 years later in 397 the church closed the issue at Carthage so this is important for us to know that that, that was it 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 became scripture the second it was written down it began to function like scripture as it was being used throughout church history and it was formally recognized as scripture in 397. So that's the process of of canonicity and there's a theological underpinning but that's the story. And I want to address that again one more time those ideas that the New Testament only took final form through great debate and that, that word oppression which is thrown around so much today. Uh, like we said, Bart Ehrman is is a famous scholar who he says we, we need to think of New Testament canons with an S plural that Orthodoxy is meaningless, right? That anybody was they're all coming up with their own ideas, and the one that we have now is just the team that that won. But anytime somebody says, for example, this book here, it was always written hundreds of years later. It was never widely accepted in the church, it was never argued to be included. And it advocates for new aberrant doctrines. So, I mean, read the Gospel of Thomas. It's nothing like the rest of the Bible. Right. The church fathers were not dummies. They were wise, they were cautious, and they were pious in this process. This is, there was no great struggle. There were not multitudes of poor little put-out books of the Bible. you, you got to read the fathers. And I know, Zach, you're a huge fan of this quote from Eusebius, so I'll let you explain this and, and then read it because it's, it's so important to address the objections that we even still hear to this day. Yeah, so this is Eusebius again the first
1: and a great church historian, very early. He says writings published by heretics under the names of the apostles, such as the Gospels of Peter, Thomas, Matthias, and others, or the Acts of Andrew, John, and other apostles have never been cited by any in the succession of church writers. The type of phraseology used contrasts with the apostolic style, and the opinions and thrusts of their contents are so dissonant from true orthodoxy that they show themselves to be forgeries of heretics. Accordingly, they ought not be reckoned even among the spurious books, but discarded as impious and absurd. Now remember that, that this is not the language of somebody who's a later scholar, sometime in the eighteen hundreds, you know, th- this is the language of somebody incredibly close to these things. And they are all he's already saying, you know what, we've looked at these
0: It's like the three thirties AD, I yes. believe.
1: We've looked at these, we've studied them, and we we have received and, and noted that, that these are not in the same they, they don't sound and feel the same as the books that god has given broadly in the church and therefore we are going to go ahead and let these go um and and so it just really comes down to the, Old, the new testament was established early and accepted almost immediately and, and this is i'm i'm not that's not a statement of belief or of doctrine i'm making i'm just
0: really relaying kind of a historical thing that we understand yeah people that want to be like well what about the gospel of thomas like the first church historian is like yeah we know about that one it's really weird but very obviously made up by some heretic like that's it's another one of those this folks like bart ehrman and walter bauer they'll say this must have happened right it's like it doesn't matter if the if the history bears it out or not. And when we talk about the uh, the, the manuscript evidence that we have, like the thousands, hundreds, and thousands of copies that we have exactly. preserved of the actual Bible books now, and you, you'll have like eight of the Gospel of Thomas, and it's, it's from like, far later. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't the comp- kept, and, and, right. and so. Don't let these people put a finger in your face. Like this is not history. They're they're quoting they're quoting somebody who's quoting somebody who's quoting somebody who had a theory. Right. And they maybe got a few little facts, but we've we know about them and we've answered them. So that's our New Testament. You know, there there's twenty seven books. There are a few that are worth reading and studying, like the epistles of Clement or Ignatius or Barnabas and they're edifying. They're, they're, they're like mere Christianity. They're really good. There you go. That's, but they're not scripture. Yeah, exactly. And they're probably on a higher plane than mere Christianity, actually, because they were written from those early days. But it, it's, it's always in submission to the New Testament. So I think you can see that the canonization process is a little messy. But that should not rock your faith. It should be exactly what we should expect. Isn't this how God always does things? Mm. I'm going to send my Messiah. Okay, great. He's been born in a manger in Bethlehem. <laughs> Well, that doesn't seem like how God would do it. That's exactly how God would do it. God used people. And over millennia in the church, the Old and New Testaments have risen above any contenders, proven themselves to be the word of God. And now, it's going to be our, our final point for today. The canon is closed. The canon is closed. We are never going to add or take away from the scriptures. So, I don't care what Muhammad says. I don't care what Joseph Smith says. I don't care what any denomination with their official writings ha- say. We're not adding or taking away to the scriptures.
1: And this again comes down to right the the, the authority that we're looking for, and that's why you got to be really careful. And, and this is applies to many other things, but you don't want to be like. I just want to encourage you, if you're as a young believer or or, or however, wherever you are, and you're looking at these things theologically, we don't start our reasoning and our thought from outside of scripture and then go look, you know, in Scripture to, f- to, to prove our logic, right? We right. start from within Scripture because that helps get us going on the right foundation, right? We, we look at what Scripture says, and then we reason outward from that. And I think sometimes people can get tripped up by, and honestly, I think that's where a lot of these word ideas come from, is people have a historical or a sociological thought, right? Like, oh, well, I think that the, how the process of canon must have been, must be this and then they kind of go from there and try and and try and look for a little bit of evidence for that. And it's so much better when we do what seems to have paid off for us in the past is we start, right? If you're a believer, and we're we're we know we're primarily speaking to believers here, so I'll just talk to you. If you're a believer and you believe in Jesus and you believe in the Holy Spirit and you believe that God gave you his word, then it's not even a big leap to believe that this is a process that God would use. And honestly, it's in it's incredibly wonderful and exciting to see now when you say like we just spelled it out this is how this process went when you see that and you say oh well that's all (laughs) like look how well look how the holy spirit did that it's it's so it's it's not a mysterious you know secret thing that happened behind closed doors it's a very simple process where the holy spirit working through the hearts of men both got the things written and then got them received accepted and distributed throughout the church
0: Yeah, and let's look at this. Why do we believe the canon is closed? Ephesians 2.20 says, The household of God has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus and Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So using the image of a foundation, he says apostles and prophets. These are references to the two groups that God used to establish his scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, prophets and apostles, and of course, Jesus Christ himself, the true first cornerstone. And then we build upon it. We build upon the foundation. We don't add to the foundation. Everything that the church learns or understands or decides or believes must be within the boundaries of Scripture. We have no authority to go beyond it because the canon, the measuring line, tells us where we ought to be. Right. When the canon was recognized, there was consensus that there would be no more scripture written. They, they were well past that point. Right. Nobody believed scripture was still being written. And no father or council ever made provisions for adding to the Bible until 1546. But we're not really talking about that anymore. <laughs> this ends up ex- with our ontological way of thinking. If God wanted to add to his canon, we should expect it to be widely used, recognized, and accepted. And that has not happened. And it never will. The Old Testament canon had been established long before the time of the New Testament. And the New Testament was written at the greatest moment of redemptive history. So the Bible, you can see, was finished at the culmination of God's work. When he completed the story of Revelation, because Jesus was the seal of Revelation, then Scripture stopped. And so short of a redemptive event on the level of the gospel, there can be nothing that should warrant further written revelation. There's nothing that is going to compare to the cross and the empty tomb to give us new Bible. So anybody that that talks about we need to start considering additions or subtractions or reinterpretations, no, we don't do that. What extra information have we received from the Holy Spirit to change about what Jesus said or did? And you know, there are, there are actually curses promised for those that try to touch the bible i mean literal galatians Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 says that if anybody even an angel preaches a different gospel that he is to be anathema that is accursed 2nd timothy chapter 3 tells us the scriptures are able to make us complete and i might say can we be made complete with an incomplete bible
1: yeah and that's kind of that's the reason why that that it sounds good when you ask the question, right? And I think a lot of people ask it from a totally fair place. They're just asking, right? They say, well, well, what about now? Right? What, what if God wrote something now? And then we, well, okay. And it's a fine question. We can talk about it. But here's the thing. You have to re- think it out from scripture. And if the, when the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and proof and correction, and instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, right? Thoroughly equipped for the good work. Well, if, if in the year of our Lord, 2022, <laughs> something is now, now a document is received that we realize, oh, we've got to add this in the New Testament now. Wait, 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 hold up. You need a new Bible because we've got a new one. What that would mean is that that scripture would not be complete, right? Yeah. That's what you're saying. You're literally saying, no, God is adding a thing to complete his word. And and that's why it's very easy for us to say no. That's that God has said in His Word that this is everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. For that to be true, we there must there doesn't need to be anything
0: else that I need. And nor should we. And there I actually read something today from a certain man that very seriously questioning Second Peter, I think it was. And it's it's like he's going back and relitigating these decisions that mm. were known about decided upon in the early church, and yet he's coming along and saying, I think I disagree. And it's like, are you starting to take away from the scripture? Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in fact, one of the last things of the last chapters of the last book of the Bible says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Mm. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things written in this book. That's Revelation twenty-two, eighteen 18 and 19. So the, one of the last things God had to say is, don't touch my book. <laughs> right. And we're blessed. We, we get to live in a day where we have God's complete revelation. We're not expecting new doctrine or revelation to come from God. Uh, th- th- this was a unique thing that, that God did. We believe that God has revealed everything that we need For life and salvation. It was a long process of canonization. Uh, It was even heated at times. But we're blessed to have easy access to our Bible. You can read your Bible today with confidence. Knowing that what you hold in your hands is a faithful copy of the inspired revelation of God. Isn't that, that's just remarkable, isn't it?
1: Not only is it remarkable, but you can have confidence knowing that the process that got that to you, we believe is inspired of God. It's not, it's not just an accident yeah, the
0: process of, of acceptance as well. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So, and that's the thing I love about this is it, it Honestly, and this is a thing, you know, I, a lot of times believers, we can struggle with this whole thing because it can feel like this weird crisis of faith, like, oh, I'm going to go look at how the, I got the Bible and maybe I'll stop believing in it when I find out what's really true about it, right? And and, and honestly, that's because we've been told that that's how it's going to work by people that, you know, don't believe in God. <laughs> so, but the reality, Tyler, is, and I know you told me this happened for you as well when you were in seminary, that the study of where our, the Bible came from, it actually edifies you and builds your faith because you see that that process is something that God initiated, mediated, took care of, shepherded all the way through. And then you come to the end and realize, oh, wow, look at that. I can actually trust that this is God's word that he is looking out for. He's defending, he's protecting because you can't find anywhere in that process a man that you can point to and say, see, that was when this one man made the decision about that. Yeah. You, you can't, you know, even today, you can't look like you know, if one church down the street in our town decided, you know what? We're we are writing a new Bible. Would that shake God's word? Well, absolutely not. The, the whole rest of the church, you know, globally, the capital C church would look at them and say, no, thank you, <laughs> right? And it wouldn't do anything. There's no group of people today in the global church that could change the Bible. It's not possible. And that's through the work of the Holy
0: Spirit. Yeah. and, you know, al- and Distributing al- that to And us. ultimately it comes down to, do you believe that God is able to take care of his word? Yeah. And at some yes. point you're going to have to take this upon faith. As I said, this mm. is a theological matter. Yeah. You see, we can look and say, historically we know that this is what the church decided. We can even say that these are accurate representations of history and doctrine of the people that wrote them down. That does not prove that they are God's word Mm. that has to be taken upon faith. Yeah. So we need to remember that, that these are theological spiritual matters and that somebody who does not have the spirit of God, the Bible says you cannot hear his voice. Mm -hmm. And so do not listen to somebody that hates Jesus and, and take their word for what Jesus really said. You have to look to the Lord himself. And so when, when you have that book in your hands, Believe it and, and read it. Take it upon faith. But I hopefully we've been able to build your faith here. And uh, here's a little homework. I'm going to throw this in at the end. Okay. I want you to open up your Bible, and I want you to read the table of contents. And I want you to pick the top three books that you know the least. Zephaniah is very often on that <laughs> list. Oh, that's in there. A Just pick prophet. one of those books yeah. that you feel like, I don't know that book hardly at all. And I want you to go read it because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we as the sheep of Jesus Christ, our shepherd, have heard his voice. And we need to make sure that we are paying due attention to what he has said in all of its aspects, all of its nooks and crannies, because it's all good. And it's for your edification and for your benefit. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad that, you know, in this process of looking at these things, that it, it does build us up. It encourages us, it edifies us, and it just makes me excited. Number one, it, it feels like, every day I need that feeling again of like, oh, wow, this is exciting. I need to go get my nose back in the word. I need to study it more, you know, and and even looking at where it came from gives me that desire, right? And then it also helps when, as, as we're going to continue looking at kind of in the, over these next couple uh, episodes, we're going to keep looking at the Bible and our doctrine of the Bible and having that foundation, right? If we don't have this foundation of knowing where scripture came from and where its authority comes from, then later on when we try and talk about you know important doctrines of scripture we're not going to be able to do that without this foundation so it's really important that we start from that place and then and then we can move on
0: you know right so let's get some recommended resources in here yeah uh so i'm gonna give you some books you can go look up Uh, there, first of all, there is a free pamphlet on the ironworks website called, can I trust my Bible that runs through some of these issues that we just said, and maybe you can see some of them written out for you, but, but let's get the the best ones to you. We've already mentioned Michael Kruger several times. He's kind of the man on this issue. Uh, he's got a book called Canon revisited, which is awesome. And it lays out that ontological view of Canon in, in great detail, uh, we've also got a book by him co-authored with Andreas Kostenberger, who is also excellent. You can find a ton of stuff that he's written. And they've written a book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. And that is uh, addressing the historical matters of, uh, as we discussed, that the church was not fighting over canon and doctrine early on. And that's, a, that's an excellent one. F.F. F. Bruce who is a, an older author. He's with the Lord now. He has a book called The Canon of Scripture, where he lays out the history and he lays out some of the technical matters. And And uh, he's the one that famously has the quote that we can recreate 99.8% of, of Scripture from uh, the text that we have. So we'll get into that more next time. Also, uh, there's a book called A General Introduction to the Bible by Norm Geisler and William Nix. And it, it goes into much more detail, but they have a, a section, a, a chapter on canon, which is very good. And that gets into more of the historical details. And uh, check out Eusebius as well. It, just look, it's called The Church History by Eusebius. It was written in 330-ish A.D., I believe, uh, right after the persecutions had ended under Constantine. And he goes into uh, some detail about what what happened in the early church, and he discusses the issues of canon as well. So... Uh, anything you want to add to that list, Zach?
1: No, I mean those are all books that you know they're they're, they're a good split between you right there. They're at a level that you can understand and read through, even if you're not somebody that just loves to read scholarly books. But they're also not just a little you know uh, something that's written without kind of the important careful history and stuff that you want. So they're very very good. Love all that stuff. I've been reading through it and it's been really helpful for me. So
0: awesome. I really recommend. Well, thank you all for listening. Hopefully that was edifying for you. We're praying for you as well. Next time we'll get into textual criticism and how we know that the text of Scripture is exactly what is right in front of you in your lap in the Bible that you have. So thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. All right, we'll see you guys soon.